So Revelation 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you in peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come the Almighty. All right, Revelation. So, first words are important. You probably remember, remember me saying this when we preach through, well, everything. Every time I start a series, I say that because the Bible's intentional. And the first words of books are even like this. The point of it is almost like orientation. Who has ever had a new job where you get orientation? And they kind of give you the lay of the land. What should you expect for the rest of your time in this job? And these opening verses of Revelation give us a quick glimpse of what we're to expect about what the purpose of Revelation is and how you're to read it. And like I've said before, when we're dealing with Revelation, there has to be a good element of humility because Revelation is complicated. It is often misunderstood. It is not preached on nearly enough, at least not beyond chapter 3. And as a result, um, there's already many people here, I'm sure, that already think they know exactly what Revelation has to say. And let's just say we're going to approach this and try to take it verse by verse and see what it's trying to say. Okay? And the first verses are important. The way you open a book is important. How about The Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens that begins with, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Now, the reason it starts that way is because it sets the tone. If you know the book, it's going to contrast approaches and different ways of living in the midst of the revolutionary era, in the revolution of France. So it sets you up to see that there's two different approaches. This is the, the synopsis, in some ways, of the book. Or how about the opening to C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader? That starts brilliantly with, there was a boy called Eustace Scrub, and he almost deserved it. It's a good name. And the idea being... That you're going to have, this is going to be a story about a young boy who is a bit of a rotten kid. He's a rascal, you know. And it sets the tone early. And so it is with Revelation. And what we're going to learn here in these first verses is almost like, and I've said it before to you, it's almost like those, gutter, those, those barriers on a bowling alley that keep you from throwing a gutter ball. Revelation is going to set early and often the boundaries and say, if you understand the book within these parameters... You're going to avoid being um, either running away with an interpretation and making it a little crazy, uh, but you're also going to not deny its power because they're powerful images, it's a powerful message, and it should change you. 
But how do you read it so that you don't go, pardon my French, wackadoo, and, but how do you also read it so that you're not saying it's just symbolic and there's nothing, there's no meat to it? What is the answer? Is there an answer? Well, there is, and it's here. And we're going to see that Revelation aims to do some things. Three things, like usual, we're going to start here in these few verses. That it first seeks to renew your imagination, to elicit a response, and to grow your faith. Okay? This is, you're going to see it in this passage, and it is going to be the same things throughout the whole book. It tries to renew your imagination, elicit a response, and grow your faith. Let's begin with imagination. So, when you're an ancient Roman, and you're walking through any part of the Roman Empire, you are going to be inundated with images, imagery, symbols. You're going to walk, and there's going to be shrines, temples, prostitutes, markets, uh, statues. All sorts of things are happening. And everything you see with your eyes is not neutral. Nothing is neutral. Everything carries a meaning. Everything is trying to tell you something, or you want... Because we're people who try to interpret everything, you try to see everything in such a way and interpret. What does it mean? What does it mean? And every time you see a symbol, it adds to what you believe about the world. Okay? It just happens all the time. And in Rome, it was very simple. All the symbols said, this speaks to the power, authority, importance, and centrality of Rome. But it's no different in our world. When you are any given day, uh, walking, driving, living, you see things like on the screen, we'll put a bunch of pictures up. So you'll see, you'll read the newspaper, maybe. You'll see a McDonald's with a logo that means something. A Walmart, a Starbucks, a flag. Everything you see has to be interpreted. It's not neutral, right? You see a flag, what do you think? I'm not, well, you don't have to yell it. But something, there's an image that comes to mind. And that idea of what you think about Canada is made, it's forged in you, and it influences. And when you take all the things you see in the world, and then you become one human being, you see that you are made up of how you interpret the images that you see, and the things you see in life. And as a result, let's look at just one of these logos, which I joke about a lot, this one, Starbucks. Now, when you see this logo, what comes to mind? If, on, if you're on the more cynical side, maybe, you would say, well, you know, it speaks a lot about um, Expensive, over, overpriced things. It talks about burnt coffee. I hear people say that often. Uh, it's exploitation of local indigenous farmers. It talks about environmental waste. Um, maybe it's about rubes. You know, rubes like Carl go there and spend their money, right? You have an image. Maybe it's a negative image. But maybe you have a more positive image. Forbes magazine says that even though there's 32,000 Starbucks in the world, most people who go regularly feel like it's a local brand because it has a, it's, they, they like the service, they like the atmosphere, and it feels local. Studies show that people, their self-esteem skyrockets when they're holding a Starbucks cup versus a Tim Hortons cup. <laughs> people feel like they're something because they paid more money for it. Like it, I'm not saying it's right, I'm just saying this is the way we are. Most, many people who use it, and it's obviously doing it well, see it as being good quality, good service. So, Depending, it doesn't matter really what side of this you're on. The point is this. That image has made an impression on you, one way or the other. And if you now imagine all the images, a crying baby, a church, a war in Ukraine, and you begin to interpret what does that mean, all of those things are you. That makes up who you are as a human being. Okay? All the way you interpret things. So, 
It's a, and they're all images. They're all visual. And the power of images are so incredible that God knew enough to make it the second commandment. Don't make a graven image. Because he knows and understands, and John and Revelation know, that what you see has an incredible impact on you. Anyone with children will know that video games are incredibly addictive. Why? Images. Why is pornography so addictive? Yes, there's sin, but there's images. They seem real. Images are very powerful. And it's not a mistake, then, that this incredibly important book comes to us as a visual book, even though it's written. See, it's written, and yet it's, it, it evokes your imagination. Think about the way, just, just look at the wording in these first few verses. It happens throughout the book, but let's just use these first ones. You can put the screen up. First, it starts with, this is the revelation. The revelation, revelation is a Greek word, apocalypse, right? Apocalypse doesn't mean destruction or Vietnam and napalm. Remember? Apocalypse now. It doesn't mean that. It means the revealing. That's what it means. That's what the word apocalypse means. And you reveal things. You can do it in many ways, but visually is what's intended. Think about how, remember the game shows, behind the curtain is a, we're going to reveal a new car, right? Or how about the trend towards gender reveals? Have a big pinata, you beat it to death, and if it's pink, it's a girl. It's a visual image right off the start. But not just that. See what, God, what Jesus says. This was given to John to show what must take place, not to tell. To show us what's taking place. Images. Written, but images. It goes further. He bears witness to all that he saw. So remember, the vision is an actual vision. He's seeing this. Images, again. We're going to talk about why it's like this in a minute. It goes further. Look how he says, behold. It's idu in, Hebrew, in Greek. And it says, and hine in Hebrew. And it literally means look. So he says to you while you're reading, you're not up there with him watching this vision, but he says to you, look. He doesn't say read or listen. It's instead, look. It's interesting. It goes further. Every eye will see him. Every eye will see. Why doesn't it say that every, something else? Why is it images of visuals? Again, later in verse 12, which we'll get to next week, it's incredible, the wording. I turned to see the voice. See that? I turned. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Timing was good. But he turns to see a voice. Isn't that interesting? How do you see a voice? But the image is there on purpose. And it has these, already, you start right away with some of these seemingly bizarre images with the seven spirits, Jesus coming on a cloud. We'll talk about what I think that's, what, what we're getting at there. All of it means that you are meant to see it. So, John understands something. John, the spirit, God, of course, that this, reading is an act of the imagination. I'm going to ask you to think with me here. When you have a written word on the screen, that is nonsense, right? It's just scribbles on a page. The Bible is just scribbles on a page unless you know an alphabet. Then the scribbles on the page have meaning, and then the letters become sounds, and the sounds become words, and the words become pictures. When you read cow, you see cow. This is why we love novels, right? Because you build Narnia as you read it because the images are formed in your head, because to convert scratches to sounds, to words, to pictures, is an act of the imagination. Word reading is an act of the imagination. John understands this entirely. And so, when the images that are so crazy and radical, and we'll talk about them over the next months, come to us in Revelation, here's why they come as, as these. 
they come as purging agents. You've, if you've ever gone where in wine country, on a wine tasting, or I guess at food as well, in between wines, they sometimes will give you a palate cleanser, right? You swish it around, you spit it out. Revelation is a palate cleanser. Let me explain. The world presents you with images. This is what the world is like. This is Starbucks, right? This, you'll be happy if you buy a Starbucks. You'll be sad if you buy something else. The world is, is this sort of a way. Revelation comes and punches us in the face with stark, hard images to wipe away and sweep away the images of the world that say this is how the world is and replaces them with the images in Revelation and says this is the way the world is. And so it does it in a visual way to replace. It's a counter image. Revelation presents you with a counter view of what the world is. Okay? And that's why the images are so stark. They're not meant to just terrify you. They're meant to replace, to be so jarring that it pushes you so that when you see Starbucks, you're neither angry nor super excited. Because you know, as miserable as they may be as a corporation, they won't have the last word, because Revelation says so, counter image. And you also won't fall for them and think they're the greatest thing since sliced bread, counter image. Because Revelation engages your imagination and says, do you dare to dream to imagine a world that is different than the one you're living in? And it's the one where God reigns. And so... Revelation is intentionally playing on our imaginations constantly. And the counter image that you're going to see throughout is, and if you're here on Thursday, I mentioned it, is wonderful and very disheartening. It's one of a slain lamb. It continually says, the only way to overcome this world is by following God. But when you follow God, you find he chooses to resist less, to win by dying. Although he's going to come and wipe away and to purge and do all that himself, the church is never told to pay, take up arms in Revelation. Never. The church is actually told to act like the lamb. That's hard. It's going to be hard. But that's the overwhelming image. And the image of the slaughtered lamb becomes the paradigm through which we see everything. Your family's disrupted because of different views about COVID? Who is going to be the slayed lamb to bring reconciliation by dying, even if it's something they really believe in? Slain lamb. That becomes the paradigm for everything. That is the new imagination, right? This is what it's doing to us. Now, if it comes to renew the imagination, it also comes to elicit a strong response from us. Everywhere, Revelation continually asks you to choose sides. And it does it right here. Look at the words. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So it explicitly says that this is to be read out loud. Out loud. Now, how come? Because, let me use an example. When you email me, I can choose to set aside that email and answer it on my own time, when I want. Or not answer it if I don't like it. Right? It's an email. But what happens if you come and your email says, Carl, can we go for coffee? I can answer it when I can figure out my schedule or whatever. But if you come up to me after the service and say it, it's a different thing because now you're right there in front of me. There's an urgency. I should, I, I'm expected to answer because you're standing in front of me. And I have to live with the consequences of my decision because if, you, if I say no, uh, you know what, I'm not a big fan of yours, no coffee for you. <laughs> if I say that, I have to deal with that uncomfortable moment, right? Um, or whatever it is. See, the spoken word face-to-face -face, demands an urgent response and that you deal with it. It can't be ignored because he's standing there. So revelation comes to you ever-present, 
God is standing here speaking to you. That's why he says, read it to all the churches, not just the seven churches, all the churches. And that means he is waiting for a response. And he's not being a tyrant. He does it because the time is near, because the end is coming. And you can't choose sides at the end. So he's demanding some sort of a response right at the outset. And he makes it clear here in the first verses of the book. Now, there's a consequence here. When we, some people, you know, it's interesting. You go into the world and people are, by and large in Canada, and many Christians, sadly, are under the impression that they don't need to make, they can be on the fence. You know, I don't need to accept Christ necessarily. I just got to be a good person. It's, you know, Jesus is good for you, not for me. Or I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe I have to be at the church. You know, there's all sorts of things. And there's this, this naive almost negligent approach that most humanity takes to it because they just don't believe Jesus to be true and to be right, that they think that their decision isn't important. That doesn't matter what decision they make. But look at what he says. He says it so clearly here. Um, Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written, for the time is near. And look what he says. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him, all tribes of the earth, will wail on account of him. Now, your refusal to acknowledge, even the people who pierced Jesus, so he's speaking about the ones who actually killed him on the cross, even your refusal to accept Christ as Lord will not be permitted to go on forever. That's what Revelation is saying. You can choose to disagree. You can choose to say he's just a nice teacher. But that's not going to wash forever. At some point, you will stand before God. That's the claim of revelation time and again, which is why it's such an urgent call. And which is why, as a pastor, I get so frustrated when people say, the blood moons, is Putin the Antichrist? I get a little frustrated because I'm thinking, guys, people are dying, and the end could come tomorrow, and you're worrying about newspapers? Tell people about Jesus. The end is coming. It's quick. It's coming quickly. So... Let me say this as well. The image of him coming on the clouds. You're going to see throughout this study that imagery is imagery. That it's sometimes, when we talk about literal, is it literal? You have to understand what the word literal means. If you took my Old Testament class, we'd spend some time on that. Literal is this. Two ways of seeing literal, and they're both literal. One literal. Some people will say, he's going to come on a saddle on a cloud. Like he's riding a cloud of some way. Surfing? I don't know. I'm not trying to be little. I just don't know how he'd come on a cloud. That's possible. That's a literal interpretation, but it's not the only literal interpretation. What? Remember, if, if, if Revelation is a palate cleanser, what it is saying is he is going to come in such a way that he will not be able to be written off as a nice teacher. He's going to come in a way that's going to be so shocking to your senses as a skeptic that you're not going to be able to hide behind these feeble, oh, yeah. I was a good person, or he was a good teacher. No, good teachers don't come riding on clouds. It's a powerful counter image. We cannot be indifferent to what we're being shown. So, Revelation comes to renew the imagination, to demand a response from us at every turn, but then also to grow our trust. So, Revelation is um, difficult, right? It's, it's a lot of brutality in it. People are dying in it. It's hard images. And there's a certain sort of interpretation of these symbols that can leave you jaded. 
One such, and there's many of them, and if you were here on Thursday, we went through lots of examples, but one such comes from a scholar who's a liberal scholar, but a Christian in theory, um, and he's, I'm not trying to be facetious. He just doesn't believe the Bible is true, so I question if he's a Christian, that's all. Um, but he says this about Revelation. His name's John Dominic Crossan. Can I put that one up? He says, Revelation, it transforms the nonviolent resistance of the slaughtered Jesus into the violent warfare of the slaughtering Jesus. Now, what Crossan means is he thinks, he's under the impression that Jesus is a lamb, a beautiful, nice, kind guy throughout the Gospels, and then Revelation comes and turns him into some kind of a warmonger. That's the impression, not just him, many people have, many Christians have this impression as well. But that comes from a very specific sort of way of reading, and I think ignoring, Revelation. Because here at the outset, the very beginning, notice what John says, grace to you and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come. Now, that may sound, we know it, you've heard it a million times as a Christian, but John is not unique here. He's not writing something unique. He is copying something. There, this is a, a, a very common refrain that was used in the ancient world hundreds of years before John used it. So I'll use two examples because we can't go on all night. But one of them is from the Songs of the Dove, Doves of Dodona, which is from 6th century BC in, in Greece. And in it, speaking about Zeus, they say, so six, six to 700 years before Revelation is written, it says, Zeus who was, Zeus who is, and Zeus who will be. Another one is, comes from Egypt, and it's, on, it's inscribed on uh, the Temple of Isis, and it was, Plutarch mentions it. But it was also from around the same time, that's not probably not the right temple, just for the, I don't know, small beans, but that's, I don't think that's the right temple picture. And on it, it says about Isis, I am all that hath been and is and shall be. So it's not new. John, and this is important, when the Bible takes a common euphemism from the world and uses it, and then tweaks it, you should ask why. He's, using, he's doing something. He's trying to make a point. He's taking something everybody understood, but twisting it to make a separate Christian understanding of it. And in this, he changes it. He instead doesn't say, God will be, but he says, he will come. He is to come. See that at the end? Why? First, every other religion that used that term, their goal was to make it clear that their gods were everlasting and all-powerful. They will be forever. They've always been. John and the Bible, of course, say God is everlasting and all-powerful. But it adds a unique twist. It says, but he's also relational. God isn't just this omnipotent, transcendent being that's so far away you'll never touch him, like Islam will say. You'll never know the will of Allah, says Islam, because he's too far. He's too up there, you're too down here. Nothing can bridge that gap. Christianity says, no, he is that far up there, but he also has come down. And so John is saying, God is, yes, transcendent, and we'll see it more next week as well. Yes, he's transcendent. Yes, he's all-powerful. But he's come to you. He has not just always been, but he's always been with you. He's not just always present. He's always present with you. And he's going to come back for you. And that is important because the question we have to ask this, of this whole passage or the whole book is, how is he coming? How can we trust the God who is coming, who is this seemingly, if you, if you don't pay attention, it seems pretty, pretty harsh. How can we trust him? And the key is to know how he is returning, because the way he will come determines why you should trust him. And we know how he's going to come because it's connected to how he came. 
Okay? And John does it. In chapter, uh, this chapter, verse 5 and 6, he says, Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests, a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So, God doesn't come in naked power, though he could, and destroy the world. That's what Dominic Crossan thinks. That's what John Crossan thinks. And many liberal scholars that God is going to come and he's just going to do. He's so sick of this, so sick of issues. The Ukraine stuff just keeps happening. COVID keeps happening. Injustice keeps happening. I'm just going to bareface power, swipe, swipe away. That's the impression people get. But we know when he came is an indication of how he's going to come. And how did he come the first time? He loves us. He frees us. He comes as liberator from our sins by his blood, meaning he doesn't free you by just crashing the teeth of the enemy that's holding you captive, but he comes but by, his, by his own life dying for you. So he doesn't come as a conquering hero. He comes as a suffering lamb. And so the message of Revelation is very clear to those who hear and keep what he is saying, who trust him to be who he has been in the past, which is what we do. We look forward to the future because we trust him to be the same God he was. In fact, Tanner mentioned it earlier. Same God who is, was, and whoever will be. And those we are being told, to those who keep, hear and keep his words, he comes as liberator, as savior, as friend, as king. But for those who don't, we cannot hide the truth of what Revelation says. If you choose to not accept this lamb, he comes as judge, as punisher. And I think what makes us sometimes shy away is because we are so worried that we don't trust him as savior. So of course we're not going to want him to come. Of course we're going to see him as a tyrant because we haven't watched what he's done historically. And so Revelation, as we're going to see throughout this series, is such an encouraging book because it tells us time and again that our, he's trying to change our imaginations. He's the great and powerful Oz, don't mind the image, where he pulls back the curtain and he gives you a, a, a bird's eye view. He says, come and see the way the world really is working. That's what Revelation is doing. Like opening the face of a watch, and you get to see the machinations of heaven and how everything is being done. The question is, will you believe that even amidst the horrors in the Ukraine, that Christ is sovereign? Some people will say, no. How could God do it? How could God allow this? And for those, it'll be the ones who don't hear and keep what God has said. I understand that. But Revelation comes to say, trust him. Trust him in the midst of it. And we're going to see much more of this next week as, all, as well. Sorry. The unrepentant will see only confusion and war in Revelation. We, however, see something else, hopefully. So today, it's very simple. Is your imagination being stirred already in the first minutes of our study? Are you beginning to see that the only way, there's no salvation, there's no refuge from the king, as I've said before, only in the king. And so, even now, the call is repent and be saved. There's no other way. So that's it. If you feel, even now as a Christian, I need to renew, let's do that. Let's recommit yourself to, to Christ. If you're a skeptic, do it, because the time is coming soon. He's come. Repent and believe in the God who came once to buy your soul and will come again to claim it. That's what Revelation will tell us time and again.